Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. Missouri Congressman Eric Burleson has served in the U.S. House for less than two years. But the battlefield Republicans' tenure in federal politics has been fairly eventful, even though his caucus is often at each other's throats. On the latest episode of Politically Speaking recorded at Missouri Republican Party Lincoln Days in Kansas City, Burleson talks about the hot issues percolating around Congress and why he believes that former President Donald Trump will be a strong contender to win his job back later this year. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws that they are balanced and they affect everybody equally. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. We gotta find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't wanna leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. I'm at Missouri Republican Party Lincoln Days in Kansas City, Missouri. And my very special guest, first time doing this show in person. He is the congressman for Missouri's 7th District. I'm Eric Burleson. Welcome to uh, the, the show face-to-face. The last two Remo- times, you, the, the, the past two times you were over the phone at KSMU, basically. Yeah, I, we have uh, KSMU in 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 Springfield, Missouri, at the university that I attended, and it's it's a great location. But so, but I'm happy to do it in person. Me, here. me, me too. Um, we we typically on the show, and by the way, if you hear noise in the background, it's because we are doing this like at a hotel, <laughs> and sometimes noises happen. So do not be alarmed. That is not your your podcast device uh, self-destructing. Yeah, typically on the show, we like talk about policy and government first, and then we talk about politics second. But let's flip it a little bit. Let's talk about politics first, because there's a lot of ground to cover and about how uh, dysfunctional the U.S. House is. But, you know, we're a few months away from the presidential election. I I, I assume you have endorsed Donald Trump a long time ago. Yeah. Why, why Donald Trump again? Like, I understand, like, you're going to make a lot of arguments that Joe Biden is bad. But, like, what is the argument that Trump is good? I, I think especially as, as we've been learning more and more about how um, uh, how he was from the moment that he was elected, he was targeted inappropriately, it really illegally by the FBI, by uh, John Brennan, you uh, working through the CIA and working with his foreign connections, started a spying effort against a candidate for president of the United States. And if you think about this, like it, this, this sounds like something that's in a scary dystopian, you know, political movie. 
but that actually happened. And what are you referring to when you talk about spying exactly? I mean, I don't, the, the latest news is that Brennan reached out and used his connections to the other, the allied nations of the United States and their intelligence communities. So like, uh, you know, all of uh, like England, Israel, all, all of the countries that are working with the United because States. Of, because people were accusing uh, Trump of having ties to Russia or something like no, that. No, that was prior to that. Okay. This all happened prior to the accusations. Okay. And so uh, asked them to spy on, on the Trump campaign. And then it wasn't until at that point that the the um, that the the Russian dossier um, was produced, and so look at the end of the day, and which was proven to be a hoax. And at the end of the day, you have the the guy who won the election for the United States as president, even if he hadn't won. It's absolutely disturbing that we had an effort that was done by um, people that were not elected. We're talking about people that are. They're working for the very entity that we would hope would be designed to protect us and protect our rights instead was spying on on Americans, including the guy, one of the most important people in the United States. So you have actually joined a resolution. We're, we're going to go. We're going to excuse me for a second. I'm going to take this out in post-production. So to shift a little bit into your official business, you actually signed on to a resolution saying that Donald Trump did not commit an insurrection on January 6th. Can right. you explain why you decided to sign on to that? Yeah, because there wasn't, there was no insurrection. There was no insurrection. And look, Jason, like we see, and I, I made the, the, the comment that we have these kind of protests in Missouri very often. In fact, the day that I gave the speech about this, we, there was a pro-Palestinian protest disrupting the Missouri House of Representatives where, where people had to physically be removed. And this happens on a regular basis. And honestly, frankly, I think that me politics is messy. People should be allowed to petition their elected officials. People should be able to be allowed to have free speech, to, to be able to, uh, you know, express themselves in the press and everything without fear of reprisal and, and do so peacefully. I think that what happened on January 6th probably would, would uniquely not have happened in any other time in American history. And the reason I say that is because we had just left COVID, an era in which people were not allowed to even go into the building. So now the optics of people coming into these public houses is no longer normal. It, where people once used to be able to go in and protest, put on the face paint, okay, wear the buffalo horn. But that doesn't mean the guy wearing face point, paint and buffalo horns is there to take over the country in an armed insurrection. So I don't, I think that things were heightened. I think that people responded in a way that was concerning. And there were certainly people that should go to jail. And just like in Missouri, some people that were had to be physically removed from that pro-Palestinian protest should should face some some uh, penalties. Yeah, and, but, I, and I understand that like not everybody who was like at like the the rally from the White House actually went to the Capitol. But you've seen the videos where like policemen are getting beaten with sticks and they're breaking into the Capitol. Like 
that doesn't really seem like acceptable or defensible behavior. What? No, and I'm not defending that, and I'm not defending the actions of the people that were protesting and disrupting the Missouri Capitol. But what I am saying is that this this is something that is part of American culture. We don't want to create a such a chilling effect that people cannot uh, be involved in protests, and that you that we're suddenly now we've become the nation where we're arresting grandmas and grandpas who were just simply there. Um, walking through their nation's capital. Now, they're, they're, uh, Trump is clearly going to be the nominee, okay? But there are definitely people within your party that supported other candidates, primarily like Ron DeSantis fans, who are frankly just not happy that Trump is back and are really skeptical that he can win, given that, you know, he's a divisive figure. There are a lot of people that just will not vote for him because they don't like him. What's your message to people in the party that may have wanted somebody else to be the presidential nominee this time, but that's not going to happen? Yeah, I would say that as much as you may not like the the things that he tweets or the things that he says, and, and I think... The things that he truths, not... He doesn't tweet right. anymore except one time, but continue. Yeah, I still use the word tweet is just kind of almost the way Kleenex is now used synonymously for everybody. That's fair. So, but I would say that Trump... Um, you know he he's he's a little bit he's he's brash and the things that he says are unrefined you know look, look for a long time people have always said wouldn't it be nice if a politician just spoke what was on their mind and i think that here we have an individual who absolutely speaks exactly uh, what's on his mind with and he's not holding back and so that's going to rub some people the wrong way but let's but let me ask this who would you rather have leading the nation someone who is who has completely allowed the border to be opened to have it's it's close to nine million people that have crossed that have crossed the border illegally you have uh, now the the surging population of chinese who are who are crossing the border illegally it's changing the culture of the united states rapidly we've never in the history of this of this country had an immigration percentage as high as we we have right now so it is rapidly changing the culture of the United States. And the question is, why, why, what is Joe Biden benefiting from? Uh, what, is, what is his party? What is he benefiting from, from keeping these borders open? In, in addition to that, like you've got the spending that, that is going on on the federal level is just out of control. And Republicans take some part in blame in that. But I, I think that when you've got a, you know, the Democratic Party who, who's continuously fighting to spend more and more money and to send that money, not not on infrastructure in the United States, but to send it overseas to all these other countries. I think it, it causes most Americans to say, what's happening to my country? Why do I see things deteriorating? Why do I see crime in the streets? Um, why are police being beaten in, in New York? And, um, and is this the nation that we want to see? So I've seen uh, Trump speak at least once since he was out of office. And one of the things I noticed from the crowd was when he was talking about policy. So he spoke in Illinois right after Roe v. Wade was overturned. When he talked about abortion, the crowd was, you know, going wild. And when he was talking about, like, a lot of the things that he did as president, I think that he also got a good reception. One thing I noticed, though, 
is when, except for maybe the first time he talked about the 2020 election, when he just kept going on and on and on and on about how he felt like he really won, the crowd kind of tuned out at that. Mm-hmm. And my thought, pro- my, my, this is getting to my question. Is it time for him to just stop talking about how he feels that he won in 2020? Because he didn't win. He lost. He's not president right now. Is it time to just like admit that he lost and just try to look to 2024? Yeah, I think all of us in the Republican Party have to um, have to face reality in the face. And in and the, that reality is that the game changed in 2020. The dynamic change. And this is a different way to view it. What I'm going to say is not suggesting that the election was stolen. It was that the playing field changed. And that playing field is that many states adopted um, mail-in ballots. And the Republican Party, rather than embrace it and try to mobilize the effort, we shunned it. We tried to say it's illegal. And in some cases, it, it wasn't done legally. Correct. Like there's some states it that it was implemented. It, 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 I mean, that's your opinion, but courts didn't throw it out. But I, right. I, I understand the, the debate over like Pennsylvania did it unlawfully or not. But it, it, the and point is, it, it, it was there. But it was there. And, and, the, and it changed the game. And the Republicans, including President Trump, have to have to come to the conclusion today that um, if we're going to win elections, we have to embrace this this process, um, which we which which Republicans have do not like they don't like the idea of of ballot harvesting but if that's something that we're gonna have to do in order to win elections we're gonna have to roll up our sleeves and do the same thing well i'm glad you mentioned that because this is a point i'd like to make to people that complain about early voting mail-in voting as a term can be deceptive because there's a big difference between like what happens in oregon where they proactively mail people ballots and then just people asking for ballots or stuff like that right but in Missouri, it's in 2020 and 2022, early voting was expanded. You know what happened in 2020. It was a lot easier to get a, a ballot sent to you. Mm-hmm. And now in 2022, we have a, a several weeks of early voting. And it, it hasn't cost the Republicans anything. Republicans are still winning. So it strikes me as just sour grapes when I hear Trump continually complain about like losing in Pennsylvania, for example, because of early voting, when I'm like, why didn't you embrace it, basically? It it seems like it was bad strategy masquerading as like unfairness, basically. Yeah, and I I hope that um, he and and a lot of Republicans, including leadership in the the Republican House, who we just lost the the New York race, uh, I hope that we all kind of take a lesson from that and move on. So California, you look back, um, 2018, uh, California adopted um, mail-in voting, and in that pri- in that election, in that November election, it, the turnout um, was small on the on on election day, and on that election day, a lot of the Republicans who had normally held office in California, um, who were in longtime incumbents, uh, several of them, I think maybe half a dozen, lost their seats. But they didn't. They won the in the. They were winning in the ballots the day, the evening of the election, and then and early on in that week. But by the end of the week, when they've counted all in all of the mail-in voting, they lost. The, the then that ended up becoming the playbook that the Democratic Party used to try to expand it from not only California to all these other states. And 2020 was a convenient time, convenient event 
to implement that. But what the California legislature, the Republicans figured out, because they're insurgent, they're, they know that, knew that they couldn't change the law in California. They've tried, they realized we have to play by this game. And so they started putting ballot drop boxes at places like Cabela's and Bass Pro and, um, you know, at church, near churches. They started trying to go through the conventional, you know, conservative groups to try to, to try to, um, try to get more votes out and it and it worked because we were able to flip back a lot of those california seats well let's shift to what's going on in the u.s house particularly the the debate over whether to aid ukraine israel and taiwan i want to bring up a tweet that you you said uh i think earlier this month funding corrupt regimes like ukraine is wasteful and irresponsible we should focus on problems at home not across the globe American taxpayers deserve better than squandered money abroad. So I look, every time I talk about Ukraine, I always put out this disclaimer. I'm half Ukrainian. I'm also half Polish. So I'm not like ancestrally a huge fan of Russia. So I think you just take what I'm saying with a grain of salt here. I've heard the argument before that since there is corruption in Ukraine, and there is, I'm not denying that, we should not be sending weapons to them to repel Russia's invasion. But like, this is what I've said to other people. Benjamin Netanyahu's literally been on on trial for corruption, yet no one has suggested that we withhold money from Israel. Like, is there a disconnect between that line of argument and the way it's practically applied in policy? I think the big disconnect is that uh, Ukraine is not an ally of the United States. They're, um Israel, there's no better ally to the United States or extension of the United States than than the nation of Israel. Um, there might be corruption in Israel, but but we have corruption in the United States. I think that when you have a situation like Ukraine where it's not necessarily an ally, um, they they have they have in, indicated they want to be that they want to join NATO, they want to become an ally. But at the end of the day, they, they were not a formal ally of the United States. And then in addition, we know that there's serious corruption that's happening in, in Ukraine. And I, and I think that, look, I've, what I've publicly said is that I'm happy to talk about Ukraine and helping countries like Ukraine if we will fix the border. Because the fiscal cost of this um, has, to, has to be had. We are going into debt. Every dollar that we spend is, is future debt. So every dollar in discretionary spending in the United States right now is deficit spending. It is debt. So the question is, do you want to go into more debt to help Ukraine. It's, and I and I said, you know, look, the border is a financial, huge financial disaster. Not only is it changing us culturally, um, but I think that it has an impact on our labor force. But we know that economically, it's costing the United States just in direct cost, somewhere in the tune of $500, um, $500 billion a year. And so when you're looking at half a trillion dollars a year across the United States and just cost, whether it's hospital visits or, um, or you know, charitable aid, I'm happy to I'm happy to talk about Ukraine. If we can if we can fix the border, save save a few hundred billion dollars on the border, then we can start talking about what other nations we can help. Yeah. And I, I want to make it clear that is clear. 100% a valid argument. And also, it's also true that we gave Ukraine a lot of weapons last year and their counteroffensive failed. So I'm not saying that like 
there should be no scrutiny or debate over the money just because I, I don't like what Russia's doing. But there are some people within your caucus and your party who are clearly taking like an approach where they're basically saying Ukraine is the bad guy, they're full of Nazis, and like Russia is the agreed party. And I'll be, I'm gonna just call people out. Tucker yeah. Carlson, Marjorie Taylor Greene, people like those are, people like that, I think are undercutting people like you who wanna take a serious look at the money by being like cartoonish propagandist over this. Like, what do you think about that? Yeah, I disagree with their pers pers perspective. And I would agree with yours that I don't, I don't think that, <laughs> I don't think that the, anyone would objectively look at the situation going on and say that, that Russia, it, in my opinion, Russia is the, the, the evil actor in this situation. Right, Russia is the aggressor. They are invading Ukraine. They're they're the ones tr sending missiles into Kiev. Uh, Kiev, you know, Ukraine is not sending missiles into Moscow. Yeah. Well, let's talk about where the house is generally. It has not been. Has it been a fun two years for you transitioning into the U.S. House, given that there's been so much turmoil? I've talked with you during like the many speaker sagas and except when Jim Jordan was about to become speaker, when you seemed really excited about that. I don't get a sense that it's been a terribly fun experience to be in the Republican caucus over the last two years. Is that fair to say? It's fair to say. I would certainly say it has not been boring. There is, no, <laughs> I would say this is, these are, uh, this has been a year that has been fascinating. It's been interesting that I've been in, I never thought that I would be in the basement of the United States Capitol with, you know, 200 Republicans that are screaming at each other. Um, that are, that the people that I see on TV that I looked up to, um, it's it was very it's it was a very emotional time period for about five weeks. Um, people were at each other's throats, and what was frustrating for me, as you know, when I was in Missouri, I'm, I'm a guy that wants just to get things done. I I want to actually move the ball forward and and, uh, and and be successful. And when you're sitting, and the boat has no rudder and and there's no no propeller there's no wind and you're just sitting there it's very frustrating for a guy like me do you think that this dysfunction could cause a weird situation where maybe republicans take the senate maybe they even take the presidency but they lose the house like is there any fear that this lack of ability to actually accomplish anything and then just this constant drama is just going to cause like a literal electoral backlash, maybe not in Missouri, but in swing swing your districts, basically. That's a good question. I don't know that the impact, for example, the New York race, I'm not sure. I think that what happened with Santos and, and other things played had more of a factor in what happened in New York. Um, I think that the redistricting that's happening in uh, Louisiana and Alabama and New York are gonna have probably a bigger impact on how many seats we keep or lose. Uh, than any than than the dynamics of what's going on, and also, but North Carolina, I think, is redistricting in favor of Republicans too. So could we, that be? I think helpful? we might we might pick up one or two, but, I, but it's not going to be as much as po potentially they could redistrict New York to where they Republicans right. lose four seats or something like that. Right. So, um, but I've also heard that there have been quite a few retirements, particularly, and a lot of those retirements, the makeup of them is that um, you got a lot of. Republicans that are retiring from very red districts that are not really competitive. And then you've got a lot of Democrats who are, who are retiring from purplish districts. So it is, it's opening up the playing field 
for us. It's giving us um, some more opportunities. You know, you've, you've seen what's been happening in Missouri with the, the statewide primaries and the the factions within the Missouri Senate, which you're very well aware of because you were part of that factionalism. Is this just part of the new reality of Missouri since it's become a very Republican state? Or do you think like the factionalism will eventually hurt the party electorally if Democrats are especially are able to get their act together? So I think it's it has to do with a couple of things. One, do you have people because I feel like I served a role when in the Senate of trying to bridge the the factions of trying to tone down um, some in the in the what what is now called the Freedom Caucus, or at least keep them on the compass, keep them on a level, keep the keep their compass pointing north, um, and not getting sidetracked into personal conflicts and personal fights. Um, you need someone to do that to to keep the temperature in the room down and keep it on the policy. But I also think that you need a you need good leadership, and and I'm not suggesting that we don't. I'm just saying that. It's, it becomes a challenge, and when you have challenging situations, it gives an opportunity for someone to step up and be a leader. And I think that um, it's often a good test of someone. You know, Ron Richard had, had to figure out how to deal with Rob Schaff and Jason Crowell and um, sometimes Brad Lager, right? There, um, prior to him, um, Senator Mayer had to figure out how to deal with Jason Crowell, who is one of the most brilliant individuals who had the ability to take down things on the floor. But that's why, and not to interrupt, but Jason Crowell was effective at actually blocking things because he had a symbiosis with leadership. Like he and Rob Mayer were allies, which is why he was so effective. Whereas like this Freedom Caucus is actually agitating against leadership. And that seems to be why like they're getting more resistance at least. Yeah. And the, and the point is, and this is one of the, one of the things that I would want to say to people who might be frustrated with, with, with Freedom Caucus and is that by them connecting to the national brand, it will, is going to bring more scrutiny and accountability on the actions of those members to, to, um, to be pure in their motive, in their motives. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got situations where they're, they're straying away or they're advocating for, or they are clearly not voting in the right direction or they're not in the right way, then they, they'll be removed from the National Freedom Caucus network. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of benefits to being a part of that national network. So I think it, it, um, it's like a franchise. You know, we're, we're at the Hilton, if this hotel decides to not keep its rooms clean, not keep its bathrooms clean, and not keep the place up to date, it's going to lose its franchise. Hilton won't be associated with it. In the same way, that that's what's happened with the Freedom Caucus in Missouri, and it's a beginning. Um, but but it, I think that uh, over time, it's my goal and hope that we see um, a branding of a group that people find some trust in. So my last topic I want to just touch on is abortion, because it's very likely that the state will vote on whether to legalize abortion or not. Um, do you think that because you, you were you, you voted for the bill that eventually banned abortion, which has no exceptions for rape or incest. Do you think that that law may be a bridge too far, even for people that may think abortion is wrong and therefore it may give an opening to abortion rights supporters to legalize abortion in a more expansive way. What I'm going to say is that I think that we have a responsibility to identify that when there are horrific events like a uh, like a rape or an event of, of incest, that 
we have to find ways of helping people get through that, through those situations and, and, and do so in a way that is um, beneficial and helpful to the mother and, and, and that child. Because um, my view is that now you've got two victims you have two people that are harmed by that event. And the question is, how do we make sure that both are taken care of and, uh, and, and, and in a way that is the, the, has the best outcome from those individuals? And that means that I, I strongly, you know, while I'm a lesser government individual and I want to cut, I, I would cut a lot of things out of our expenditures. The one thing I think we have a moral obligation and responsibility to do is make is to take care of the, the people who end up in these situations financially. Well, the, re the reason I bring up the exceptions is if you've looked in other states, especially the Kentucky governor's race, the Democrats put in very effective ads basically saying, my Republican opponent yeah. would not let a rape victim get an abortion. For people that are not like super involved with politics but may have opinions on politics, they may see that proposition of, of saying rape and incest victims can't get abortions as just really extreme and something they just don't agree with. So if a similar dynamic happens with this initiative, right. that's why it, it may actually move people that may not well, like a, like like abortion to vote for this, basically. Yeah. And, and what I'm saying is that I think that the, our mutual goal should be that abortion is not necessarily even, it's not even necessary. And, and that mean, what that means is that the mother should not be burdened with taking care of the child um, at, at the same time, the child should be able to live out its life. Uh, and, I, and I know that there's a lot of people that are the result of rape who, who are walking and talking today who are just as valued and important of, of, a, of a human being as you and I. So you're, 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 just want to make sure your position is clear on this. You, your position is like, and, I, and I've heard like Andrew Koenig say before, that rape and incest are horrific acts, but allowing for abortion would punish the the unborn child and that's morally unacceptable for you it i is. want to just make sure i understand your position it, correctly. it is yes it's morally unacceptable but I, what i would say is that we 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 can't leave it at that we have to we have to pursue a path to make sure that that the mother is able to move on with her life and if if that mother chooses to do so with the child, that's fine. That's her choice. But if she chooses not to, to make sure that we can find a way where that child is not that the life of that child is not terminated, and it can move on if if the mother wishes in a separate life, like it, giving it up for adoption or something like that. Correct. I, I, I could go down the rabbit hole about how Missouri's foster system is. Uh, troubled and all that but i think we'll leave that for another interview i guess my last question for you my real last question for you is um are you are you feeling like you made the right decision running for congress and being in congress or do you feel like um that arrested development episode where you're like i think i just made a huge mistake or something <laughs> like that there's certainly moments where i feel, and i like the rest of development that was a great show yeah. um but i do there's certain moments where or I feel like I'm in an episode of The Office um, when I'm up there. <laughs> I'm looking. I'm, I'm looking and thinking. Surely there's a camera somewhere where the, you know. But there are cameras everywhere. <laughs> like not only on C-SPAN, but like how many reporters are in Washington D.C.? Like thousands, literally hundreds, thousands, or something like that. Yeah. Whereas there are. in Missouri, there's like ten or something. But right. Like, they they are everywhere. But I, but to I, I mean obviously I I. 
I feel I'm very humbled by the history that occurs, by the mag, by the the impact that uh, and the honor of being in that role, and it's certainly an adventure. Well, Congressman, thank you as always for your time. Politically speaking, as a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri, St. Louis, you can find all of our stories at stlpr.org. And Congressman, how can people follow you on social media or any other parts of the World Wide Web? I'm on all of the socials at Rep. Eric Burleson, and myself and several freshman members have a podcast that's called Fresh Freedom. Fresh Freedom. That's right. Well, did you get inspired to do the podcast by Politically Speaking? I'll, I'll say yes. Yeah, I, I don't believe you, but I, I, I need the ego boost. But until next time, so long. Politically Speaking is produced by Sarah Kellogg, Rachel Lipman, and me, Jason Rosenbaum. The show is edited by Fred Ehrlich. Read all of our coverage at stlpr.org. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Politically Speaking by searching the term Politically Speaking on Apple Podcasts. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.